Welcome to episode 649 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right, Tim, welcome along to episode 649 of I Am Talk. I'm, I think you're still venting from that thing you talked about at the end of the show last week, John. I was. We had some... This may be... Busybody. Our longest ever run of pre-recorded shows. You're starting to get sore glutes as well. I sit in Bevan's chair where we do this recording every week. And my, I think it's because what you do... Hour, I think what you do is you're pushing into the ground with your legs with your laptop. I know. Relax I'm, your feet. I'm not happy with the setup. I'll relax uh, your feet. Yeah. He told me off. He tells me off. Every week. Every week because I haven't got a table mic. <laughs> We don't sit in front of a table. <laughs> We're hanging from the ceiling. Get a cable to drop down. Um, I talk is proudly brought to you by Extreme Endurance. Uh, your lactic buffer and our patrons. And these include Paul Madman Mitchell, Madman Neil Ninja Stafford, oh, and Tim Beastie Besant. Oh, the beast, the beast of the east, John. We've been doing about five hours of podcasting right now. It's getting to the silly fact now, isn't it? It is. <laughs> and it's funny you should say that because I, I started listening to the Chrissy Wellington interview. I think it was that one. I'm losing my mind. Yep. Uh, the intro like, to that show. Yep. And we've been doing the same thing that day. We, oh, were, okay. we were recording late at night and we were just talking gobbledygook. Well, no. We were high class, John. We are mm. high class. So on today's show, we've got two interviews like we've been doing over the last period of time. And today we're going to do Andrew McQuaid. Is it McQuaid? Yes, yep, Andrew McQuaid, and we interviewed him. I think it was the eighteenth of December, nearly <laughs> a month ago, <laughs> and I think it was around about eight thirty in the morning. Um, and uh, Andrew McQuaid is a sports agent, sports agent, and he works a lot with pro cyclists. And so we thought we'd get him on to see the world of the sports agent, but also just to kind of talk about how he sees because he also does Ironman and Harry sees the Ironman game or, mm. or triathlon game for athletes and some good insight in there isn't there there is indeed mm. so I love that looking at the world of those sports where there is big money involved and just going why the hell can't we do this in triathlon uh, frustrates me a bit but cycling I love I love watching a good bit of cycling mm. and and then later on we're going to get Joe Ferrell and uh do you know what he's talking about? No, I don't. It's episode number 320, so I was sort of trawling through the archives and pulled out number 320. So we'll find out what Joe Friel is going to be talking about. Every time we interviewed Joe Friel, it was it's good. So I thought, yeah. whatever it is, it'll be good. He really is a legend of the sport, isn't he? We've heard him on Legends, haven't we? No. Huh. He should be. Yeah. Yeah, he should be. Because he's, he's, he'd probably be the most famous educator of our sport, wouldn't he? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I suppose you've got all the pin-up former athlete coaches, but in terms of... Yeah, but uh, like he hasn't creating content. How many books has this guy written? A good good point. Yeah, the Triathletes Training Bible, Cycling Training Bible, yeah. Fast Over 50, and yeah, no, yeah. you're right. Yeah, he's definitely probably the biggest educator. So we've got the biggest educator ever in the sport on the show today. <laughs> so let's get straight into it. Here is Andrew McQuaid. Okay, guys, um, we are going to delve into the world of uh, Jerry Maguire today. And oh, find, show me the money. Find out a bit about <laughs> some sports marketing. We've got uh, Andrew McQuaid from Trinity Sports Management, and uh, we got put on Tim by Rob Cummings over there in Ireland at uh, Wheelworks, and he thought he might have a bit of insight into the, the world of uh, sports marketing. He deals with uh, some pro cyclists like uh, Richie Port and um, Nico Roach, um, rugby players. Um, I'm not sure if he deals with any triathletes but we'll find out so Andrew welcome along to the show 
Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Cool. So tell us a bit about yourself. You're also an Ironman athlete, but tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and uh, and also um, what your company does and, and how long you've sort of been, been doing it. Okay. Well, in, uh, in brief, so I come from a cycling family. Um, so all of my, uh, my grandfather raced, my father, my six uncles, I raced. Um, well, so I raced for two years full-time after university trying to make that a pro, but uh, I realized quite quickly I wasn't good enough. <laughs> um, so about 10 years ago, I quit that, moved home. I worked in Deloitte for a couple of years in tax. I had a law degree, worked in Deloitte, moved over to London and uh, worked in a law firm, Freshfields. And it was during that time I just started helping Started with the Irish guys I had raced with who turned pro, uh, so Nicholas Roach, Philip Dugnan, um, started helping them. It was a completely different climate and landscape back then. There was no English-speaking agent, really. It wasn't an English-speaking sport. Uh, so I was just doing it as a hobby, so it kind of kept me involved in the sport that I love, and I enjoyed it. And then it grew from there. I kept getting a few more riders and more riders. It's going to right time, right place in 2012, 2011, 2012. Um, picked up some kind of the young Team Sky guys. And then at the end of 2012... I basically had two full-time jobs, managing bike riders and being a corporate lawyer, so I had to make a choice, and it was an easy decision. So, yeah, Trinity Sports, Trinity Sports Management was born at the end of 2012. Okay. Um, so, obviously, lots of people have seen Jerry Maguire. Is it anything like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's funny. It's, it is all about the relationships. It's a corny thing to say, but uh, at the end of the day, you have to put the athlete first, and a good agent who does that is going to be around for a long time that's what makes a good agent as opposed to someone who's trying to make the quick book etc but athletes also they do want to make money it's quite funny it's there's definitely a life cycle if they're 18 19 20 it's all about kind of racing and loving racing and winning races then they get their first contract and they're just living the dream but as they get older they get married to get they have kids uh, it becomes a job and as any job that anyone has they want to make as much money doing that job as they can so yeah, there's certain aspects to it which ring true. Just, just one thing, you, you, you have a mix of athletes, you know, kind of rugby, cyclists and a bit of golf, um, and maybe some others. Are there similarities with athletes in different sports, or are there differences, and what kind of differences are there? Uh, I would say every elite athlete is the same in that they're all a bit strange. <laughs> strange as in to get to get to their top of their sport. Like if you look at say cycling, there's about 500 riders in the world tour, the top division. And that's that's 500 riders from all around the world. There's God knows how many thousands who want to make it there, but only 500 do. Mm. So it's a special breed who uh, who make it to the top. And then the guys who make it to the top of the top are really special. And that's the same with, um, with all the sports. So it's mainly cycling, a little bit of rugby, a little bit of golf. Rugby players and golfers are the same. They're... Uh, they're a unique mindset. Um, when you say unique, what, gets, is, what is talent, that? Talent gets you so far, but mindset's important. And what is that mindset? Just the desire to win. Not at all costs, but like they're just so hungry and they won't. Also confidence. They, 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 they're confident in their abilities. They know they're good enough or they think they're good enough. And I, like I know bike riders who aren't the most talented, but because of their mindset and their confidence and their... Uh, they're just, yeah, they're stubbornness as well. They they make it where thousands of other would have failed because they just didn't have the the right mental uh, capacity to go for it. So, so what's your job in, actually entail? You know, you talked about relationships before, but, you know, put us in the shoes of, say, a pro cyclist. What what do you actually do for them other than obviously trying to sign them onto a team? How, how does it all work? 
Uh, every rider is different. Every rider wants a different service. The bread, the way cycling works is pretty much a rider will sign to a team, and the team kind of own that rider. They own their image rights. They, uh, they, they, and they look after him. As opposed to other sports like golf, where it's very individual, you do your own travel. In cycling, you join a team, and then they look after the logistics, training camps, getting the races, and every rider will make the majority of their income from their team. Because they're kind of restricted commercially, they can't work with any, they can't have an individual deal with any competitor of a team sponsor. And if you think about it, most pro teams have about 20 sponsors from bikes, clothing, helmets. So yeah, there's not much bike riders can do. So they earn most of their income from the team. Our bread and butter is negotiating those contracts. And then we help a lot with residency. If they're going to, a lot of bike riders now live in Monaco and Dora. So we help them make sure they get their re- official residency there. Shoe, shoe and glasses deals are kind of usually what they can have outside of their team contracts. We do them, and then yeah, it just depends on the rider. Some, some don't want to, don't want anything else from you. They're happy out. The others want a lot. You talk to them every day, so yeah, mm. it all depends. And, and for the riders, you know, um, in terms of you know, obviously it's different for the the top top guys. But are they just on like a straight salary? How much bonus? How much bonuses and and winning races is it for those guys? Um, you know, not not talking say the Richie Ports and the Chris Frooms, but you know your your main domestiques and the, and the really solid riders, and maybe Nico Roche, somebody like that. How does their income sort of come in? The it's still they would the majority would be a, a base salary. Uh, we negotiate on a, their contracts or calendar years, so they get paid a certain amount per year. And then it just depends on the team. Some teams hate bonuses because they feel it can disrupt the union within the team, whereas some teams love them. And more and more, actually, because it's becoming more uh, important to have a really top domestic, that a domestic can get a bonus based on other people's results. So that's that's starting to come in a bit more. Um, but bon- bonuses aren't a huge part of it. They're big and some of the bonuses are quite big, but it's all about the base salary and getting that salary as high as they can. So, so for a cyclist, for a pro cyclist, and you know, in a good team, what kind of what kind of income would they be earning? You know, you got the top the top level. So, if you kind of go top level, mid, and then lower level, what what kind of income would that be? It kind of they come in so minimum wage uh, for the World Tour for Neo Pro now I think is sixty thousand euro. Um, most neo pros would be on that or close enough. The exceptional under twenty threes uh, will get a bit more, and then it can rise depending on obviously as as they uh, as they develop. It can rise up to a lot of guys would be on kind of between a hundred and three hundred grand kind of domestics, and then it just goes up when you're on when you start earning over five hundred. You're kind of you're starting to win races over a million euro a year. You're starting to win big races, and then the kind of two two to six million is the top guys. Mm. Oh, so slightly more money than triathlon, so that's sort of a segue into triathlon. Yeah. You, you've sort of obviously yeah. done a few races now yourself. What's your sort of observation of the, I guess, of the sport as a whole in terms of its professionalism and maybe contrast it to, to cycling? I know they're really, really different, but um, maybe just give us your, your interpretation of, of what the sport's doing and where it's at. Um, so for me, uh, so I've only ever done Ironman. I've done a half Ironman last year and a full Ironman last year and then two full Ironmans this year so I've never actually done a triathlon so uh, the Ironman corporate machine is seriously impressive Um, I think they have something like 250 race days the amount of revenue they turn over the amount of money that's being spent is 
is quite impressive. It's it's a lot, and it's great. Like it's a they really are good at building that kind of brand or culture around Ironman, and people are proud to be an Ironman, and it's a, a community, so to speak. And that's people will wear the Ironman clothing, they'll get their tattoos. Uh, so it, it's a very impressive corporate machine. The, as for triathlon, I guess living in the UK here, as you know it because of the Brown yeah, brothers and what they've the seriously impressive feats they've done. Um, but it's not. I think Ironman is overtaking even triathlon. I think it's becoming more. Uh, people know more about Ironman than they do, than they do about triathlon. Um, in terms of like, it's been kind of interesting. I, I don't manage any triathletes, uh, to be honest, and. It's something that I've looked at, particularly Ironman, because I just do enjoy uh, being a part of it. And just kind of sitting back and seeing the pros and what they do. And, like, well, number one, they're extremely impressive athletes. Like, what they actually can do is extremely impressive. And then there just doesn't seem to be that much money. When you look at how much money is crossing hands on that somebody is making a lot of money, it looks like it's obviously the Ironman uh, Corporation. But um, that doesn't seem to trickle down to the pros. So is there what could be done to make because uh, obviously in my mind the athletes deserve particularly them the amount of sacrifice and dedication and hard work they put in they deserve to be making good money um so yeah it'd be interesting to see or if, if someone could figure out how how that happens um is it worth your while i mean that's the thing when we look at the prize money that the the pro triathletes are making you talked about you know, the entry level into pro cycling so like the entry level 60,000 euros that'd be you know if, if you're outside probably the top 30 um triathletes they're probably not even making that in terms of prize money yeah. they might be making more out of endorsements and stuff but um is it worthwhile for agents to actually have triathletes on their books given i presume you guys take a percentage of contracts or however it's done yeah. it's probably almost not worth your while to do it is it at this point in time no uh you wouldn't do it for purely revenue generating purposes. It's you'd be better off concentrating on cycling or different sports uh, that have more money in it. But if it if you could grab all of it and change it, so for example, there there's either there's two ways I could see it working. The US or uh, Ironman could kind of go down the UFC model where they actually contract the athletes, they they bring them all in together and then. They use their marketing spend uh, behind them to build their profiles, which is building where everyone wins then. Their profiles are built. Ironman's profile pro- profile is built. And more money comes into the sport. And then the athletes can get higher individual deals. Or else, if somebody, if the top 20 or 30 uh, pros in the world could get together and try to collectively bargain against Ironman or against uh, IT or whoever it might be to get better start money, better conditions from the races, because I know, like some pros go to a race and they might get their hotel paid, mm. and maybe a, a tiny bit of start money, like two grand or something. Which, like, that's how much it cost me just to enter the race. Nearly by the time mm-hmm. <laughs> you've mm. paid for the accommodation, so it's there. Just seems to be uh, something not quite right in terms of the athletes benefiting, and I, I don't know the solution. That's two options that are kind of in my head that could work, but I don't know what's best. Mm. Regards to like with um cyclists and golfers and stuff how much money is in endorsement so you've obviously your cycling teams you're going to sign up for contracts um you know a golf i imagine you know it's your prize money it's where you make your money but there's a lot of money in golf um but in yeah. in triathlon like the pros the prize money overall is pretty low in comparison to other sports uh but the top pros will get some good endorsement money just in other sports how much can an athlete tend to make through endorsements 
In in cycling, it's not that much to be honest. You don't see, by and large, you don't see cyclists on billboards like you would see tennis players, footballers, uh, mm. golfers. Golfers do get. That's more. That's as I alluded to earlier. The team, so they can't work with a competitor of a, of a team sponsor. So that pretty much rules out all industry. Um, companies that work within the industry, so it would have to a cyclist would have to work with somebody completely random, which they they don't use cyclists. Um, like Apple isn't going to use a cyclist to promote their new phone, whereas yeah. they might use uh, a tennis player, whatever it might be. And also cycling, they race eight, 70, 80 days a year. They're on training camps for another hundred, and they have two to three weeks off per year. And by and large, they just want to spend that at home with their families or on holiday. So it's also a time. I think that it's quite difficult to lock a rider down into giving a company four or five days a year. Mm. So it's not it's not huge, and that's not going to change anytime soon. I don't but, think. But there is one advantage a triathlete has because they're not locked into a team. They can actually kind well, of yeah. sell their image or their kind of at least to triathlon specific products. They can get endorsement money that way, which is better than a cyclist model. Yeah. Oh, and they don't race as much. By and large, yeah, true. And um, so they do, they do have more time. It's, but then again, it's about building their profile because their profiles usually are not that large. It's, it's that it's a catch twenty two where a nutrition company, yeah, sure they'll they'll um, sponsor them and give them a small bit of start money, but when they base the return on what they got, uh, what media value they got in return, that sponsorship it's not that high because the athlete's profile, even though they might be one of the better ones, it's not that large. Um, so the reach, the reach of a triathlete wouldn't be as big, say, as the reach of a top Tour de France rider. Yeah, uh, um, my my mind boggles sometimes how the help some professional sports outfits survive. And you know, when we look at cycling, the Tour de France gets gigantic worldwide coverage. But how do, yeah. how, how do the teams actually survive? You know, someone like Sky, I, I, I can't remember the numbers, whether it's thirty million euros or whatever it is that it costs to to run the team. How do they actually? Yeah. How do they survive? You know, is it Sky just pumping massive money in, and they actually think they're getting a return? Or how do all those teams survive? Pure, pure, like Team Sky is a good example. Of them, I don't know if you saw over there last week. They just announced mm, they're yeah. pulling out at the end of next year. So that was Sky, and it's not. They were in the sport for ten years. It's impressive that they uh, they were in it for so long and spent so much. It's actually a good a, a success story for cycling. But that was they they put in whatever 20 30 40 million a year and that's how the team survived the team would have got cash from a couple of other sponsors and i'm not sure which which wants to top up the budget and uh, they get a tiny amount of start money from uh bike races but not much like could be five between five and fifty grand so it's it's not an awful lot of money so it's purely sponsor driven and um, there's no there's no stadiums, there's no ticket revenue, there's no TV revenue uh, shared amongst the teams. Um, it's only really the Tour de France that has any proper TV revenue anyway. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't go to the team. So yeah, it's purely, and that's part of the problem. So for example, Team Sky, if they don't find a sponsor at the end by the end of next year, the team will fold. Um, but there's nothing to fold. All it is is a few trucks, a lot of know-how, uh, and a couple of team buses. There's nothing actually that they're going the only thing they're going to market to sell is is contracted riders. That's their asset. Mm. And if if the team doesn't uh, doesn't there's not there's nothing for a buyer really to buy apart from those riders and the infrastructure. The infrastructure isn't that big, so it's a funny model. It's people a lot of people say it's broken, and yeah, it could be better, but it's been like that for a hundred years or however long it is. So I don't mm. think it's going to be changed anytime soon. 
So for our pro triathletes, you know, a few of them do listen. Um, what um, <laughs> what advice would you give to them? You know, you mentioned before trying to maybe try to get together collectively, like the top twenty. We have kind of seen them try to do little bits of that before, but then it all it's an individual sport, and they all just splinter. But what advice would you give yeah. to to the to triathletes listening uh, in terms of how they can try to maximise their revenue and maximise their exposure? I would say they gotta they gotta really just sit down and have a look at themselves and the competitors that they're up against in terms of trying to get sponsorship dollars and how can they make themselves stand out from the other twenty triathletes, uh, the other other athletes from sports like cycling. Like, what do they need to do? It might be um, obviously building their social media is so important now. Building their profile, their brand on that. And it, and it might be health, health and wellness, and is very is growing is very important. So large corporates are all about health and wellness, uh, um, kind of policies within their company. Like, could they do something around that where they they approach a company and go, look, I can help your staff engagement by this, this, and this. So, yeah, just thinking outside the box. How can they make themselves stand out from the other hundred athletes that are behind them, trying to get the same uh, small pot of gold. Mm. What about for us as a, as a triathlon community in terms of how we can actually potentially support um, the athletes? Other, um, other than following them on their, their social media and interacting with them on social media, is there anything else you think we could do? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I don't really have the answer for. Yeah. I guess like it's the same. Every sport, it's, it's a community and you have to be it's a sport people are doing it because they love it and just yeah help each other out and and try to think how you could help it might not be money it might be introductions you might know somebody but yeah just think how you can help a pro a pro athlete out because most of them do need help um yeah i've no i have no specific answer to that question i'm on the spot on that one what what do sponsors want from pros and, and how important is social media realistically nowadays it's just a necessary evil now. You you have to do it. It's the first thing. If you go talk to a company and they they'll Google you, and if you don't have a strong following, you're far far down the pecking order. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's really important. Um, and, and and what what are examples or what do people who are successful at it? What do you see that they do? It's about like it's you want to engage your community, which is people who are following you if you're a pro triathlete it's because they're they're into triathlon they're into uh, that world they kind of they want to aspire to be like you or they want to know what your world entails so it's about showing them a kind of glimpse behind the curtain of of what you do day to day what your training is how you have fun it's not just regimented this is my training these are the intervals i did bang 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 it's like kind of showing what goes on behind the scenes mm. like Teams, the best example who uh, who really got that right was the um, Green Edge cycling team with their backstage passes. Mm. So they had three, four, five minutes uh, each day at the Grand Tours behind behind uh, the curtain, so to speak, showing the team, showing the characters, showing what behind what happens behind uh, behind closed doors, and that's what people love. That's what people want to want to see. Mm. Awesome. So, what's on your agenda for uh, for this year in terms of your racing? I don't know. So I did Arizona a couple of weeks ago, and I've kind of got my swimming and my cycling's okay, um, but I just can't run. So <laughs> I did. I did eleven hours twenty something, and I just I need to a four and a half hour marathon. I need to try take an hour off that. So I think I'm just going to focus on that. Might do the London marathon to see if I can actually become a runner because most 
cyclists are not good runners. I am definitely a typical of that. <laughs> I can sure I can plod along all day, but I need to try to learn how to run fast. I, I just have one more random question. I was just I'm just on your site right now. One of the services you have talked about on your site is kind of post career. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, if you're a pro athlete, particularly in endurance sport, geez, you, you, as you say, you spend so much time just on your bike, you're, you're probably undeveloped in many other areas of your life. So when you when you yeah. help these guys transition, or guys and girls transition into the regular world, and also, you know, you talk about the personality, the mindset, they need to be confident, they need, you know, this winning attitude, and then they, they go away from this world and they're kind of nothing, really. Yeah, what is and that's scary. That there's yeah. a lot of mental health issues around that, etc. So it's funny our agency because we're say ten years old now. <laughs> the past couple of years, it's really become relevant because ten years ago we started. Most of the athletes we started with were our age, were just starting off on their career, and now they're looking to retirement. So it's become relevant to us to help them, and we've a duty of care to help them because at the end of the day, these guys trust us as their agents to guide them through their career and a good agent will always have at the back of their mind what they're going to do post-career mm. so for example this we we had a good one actually um simon garens who we managed who just uh, mm. announced his retirement he's retiring at the end of this year he we facilitated an introduction to goldman sachs the investment bank he they have a kind of retiring athlete program and simon's not every athlete could do this but simon's a very smart guy and um, so he'll be able to do it but he starts at the start of january on a six-month internship with them in london which was great we kind of helped that introduce that and kind of facilitated his way in there and now hopefully he'll have a whole second career uh, in the banking industry which will be interesting to see mm. and then f- for other guys it's it's funny because you don't want to distract from obviously their training and racing is the most important but it's always good to be in the background with a little bit of a plan based on what the rider's good at. So, for example, Nicholas Roach, he's very um, he's very good in front of a camera. He speaks five languages, so some kind of commentary would be the obvious direction he will go post-career. Mm-hmm. So just trying to like get him a little bit of experience doing that already. Um, other guys, it's they have completely different interests in um, sports psychology, as one guy who springs to mind. So it's, it's just trying to work with that. And know because you have, it's all relationships. If you have a good relationship with him, you know, what the athlete, what that type of person is, and you, you can try and help him from there, mm. keeping it from not distracting him until it becomes a uh, time to make the leap. Because it must be horrible for a lot of guys who don't do this well. I'm sure you've seen it. You know, they give you the end of their career, yeah. and you know, and maybe haven't been that wise with their money. And it's like imagine trying to start life at 35 and kind of yeah, you know, know him. If, and a lot of guys don't earn enough to yeah to retire for the rest of life, or even. Like they need to, they'll go from having a contract to 31 December, which means they'll go from getting paid in December to January, having absolutely nothing. They have a mortgage to pay, mouths to feed. So it's a uh, very few of them have even a period of grace. Some of them need to have a job straight away after retirement. Mm. Uh, and it's like, there's been a lot of stories in the press recently. It can be quite a scary place and, and left alone and not helped. It can mm. lead to some real big problems. So in the ego side, yeah. isn't it? Cause it's that whole thing of you're the man, you know, and, and suddenly, yeah. you, you know, you go into a world and you're not there anymore. It's a hard thing to kind of have to confront, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And it's also what athletes usually they've had everything done for them. Depending oh, on the athletes, true. athletes are obviously different. They do a lot themselves, but cyclists, from the age of, if you're in the British cycling system, for example, age 16, 17, you enter that system, you have everything done for you. Your tickets are paid for, your, by large, your bike is cleaned if you're on if you're on a pro team like for 15, 20 years, and then suddenly you're at your side and you have to uh, 
fend for yourself. That's quite scary, and some people do really struggle with that. Yeah. Um, final sort of question for me is around uh, Tour de France this year. Um, obviously, Richie Port's bloody had a terrible amount of luck the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah it's going to turn around soon. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> so, how, how does he? I guess how does he come back from? You know, this year he was my he was my pick this year, and uh, yeah. a lot of other people's, and then then he crashed out. So. Man, he must be um, mentally pretty strong to be able to keep coming back. And uh, is he in good form? He is. He uh, like it hit him hard last year. Hit him hard, and then this year hit him hard too. And he, he, uh, it's hard. He dedicated well his whole career, but the past six months, his he had just had it. You had his first kid a couple of weeks before the tour, and he was basically away on training camps. And he, he dedicated a lot then to go be in the best condition you can be and then for something that's totally outside of your control a crash to take it out it definitely affects you mentally and you need he needs to step back and get away from the sport for a few weeks a month uh, however long it may be but he came back at the end of the day riding his bike is what he loves to do and um, he's currently in tasmania training already i see 150 200k days and um, yeah he he's changed teams which is kind of good timing for him i think it just needed a bit of a change of environment change of scenery so yeah, he's already motivated to come back next year as strong as ever. And because yeah. he started in cycling late because he was a triathlete before that, yeah. hopefully uh, he's, he's still getting stronger and he still has a couple of years left to have a crack at the third of France. It, hopefully it will all come right one day. I've all, all the confidence in him. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Andrew. And um, good no luck worries. with your triathlon career. And always... In your Guinness this weekend. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Guinness at Christmas in Dublin. No better place. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate your time. Lovely. You. Awesome, mate. Thank good you. Good talk. Yeah, bye-bye. Just one thing before we say sponsor. Um, it is interesting he talks about... One thing you could say the Ironman has more opportunity to make money from is they can get their own sponsors. Yes. Because cyclists really are restricted, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you might get a local insurance company in Christchurch if you... You know, but really, if you're in a team, mm-hmm. you're wearing their clothes, aren't you? But you're getting paid... Good money. Good money. Six million for the top guys. Yeah. And that'd be pound, he's talking. Probably euro. It's not bad. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, sponsor. Extreme Endurance. Remember the promo code IMTALK20 whenever you go on there, whether that's on the .com or any of the European sites. Uh, one of their products is Amiga Plus D3. Two products in one. It's a comprehensive formula providing high levels of EPAs and DHAs in superior triglyceride form along with 4,000 international units of vitamin D. D3. Uh, so it promotes healthy response to exercise induced inflammation, helps keep immune system strong, loaded with EPAs and DHAs, which are beneficial for optimal health, promotes healthy heart, brain, and joint mobility. And vitamin D3 promotes absorption for calcium for bone strength and maintenance. So get on it, guys. Keep yourselves nice and healthy. If you're just a regular extreme endurance um, user, maybe just go and try the Omega 3 and see what sort of impact you get should be nice and positive it's also gluten-free soy-free and non-gmo which is always good so check it out xendurance.com get your training consistency nice and high especially you northern hemisphere athletes that are struggling through winter and for the southern hemisphere athletes you guys are racing so everything you can do to keep yourself strong is all good that's xendurance.com guys check it out we're gonna put joe ferrell the, the greatest educator in the sport of ironman <laughs> a triathlon on right now Righty-ho, today I'm very happy to have uh, a legend. legend brought to you by TrainingPeaks.com and he's one of the men that uh, founded Training Peaks uh, as well as 
we all know that about the triathlon training bible and the, the, oh, other, the million books he's written yeah one of the coaching gurus that we're going to have at some stage on our on our legends podcast so uh welcome back to the show joe friel thanks guys glad to be here um, the topic we're going to look at today is is a couple of features that, that um, from Training Peaks that some people I think have heard a little bit about, but we just want to look into them um, in a little bit more detail. And it's decoupling and efficiency factor. So, can you just give us for for somebody who perhaps isn't familiar with those terms, just a a very brief overview about um, what they are and, and and how they differ in terms of those two terms? Sure. Uh, the concept of both of them is the um, well, the purpose of both is to try to determine what the athlete's aerobic fitness, how is it doing, how it's progressing, uh, which in the past uh, athletes never have been really able to do at all. It's just been kind of a guessing game as to when we think aerobic fitness is well established, especially in the in the base period. That's one of the markers for being ready to move on to the next period of training. And so um, it dawned on me a few years ago and I was playing around with power files to my athletes that whenever uh, whenever power increases and heart rate remains the same you know that the athlete has become more fit it's mm-hmm. an obvious thing or the uh, if you look at the other side of that coin if power stays the same but heart rate declines then we also know that fitness aerobic fitness is improved so I began playing with those two that idea and came up with first of all the idea of decoupling, which is a way of looking at aerobic fitness, aerobic endurance within a single workout. And it's kind of a complicated formula, but basically the bottom line is what it does is it compares uh, power to heart rate for the first half of the workout to power to heart rate for the last half of the workout, and comes up with a, a percentage of change. And um, uh, that number is going to be typically one point something. And uh, the lower that number is, uh, the more aerobically fit the athlete appears to be uh, for a given type of workout. Now, obviously, if the person is doing several different types of workouts, you know, variably paced versus steady paced, that's going to have a big impact on this. So the workouts need to always be the same as much as possible. So, for example, um, what I like to see happen in decoupling is that the athlete's um, uh, ratio is 1.05 or less, meaning that there was only about a 5% change in the ratio between or the relationship between power and heart rate throughout the course of the workout. It's more than 1.05 for a standard aerobic workout. That's the sign that there may be a problem here with, with aerobic fitness, and we need to... Um, uh, go to back to work on that and spend some more time kind of trying to to dial it in. Now, the problem with this is that um, decoupling or heart rate rather is not is is very dependent on, on lots of variables, and that can tend to screw things up. If it's a overly hot day compared to the previous workouts, for example, or if the athlete uh, is not well hydrated, or the athlete is gone to altitude from from a sea level to a higher altitude for a workout. Those sorts of things. Even even nutrition can have an effect on on uh, heart rate. Uh, argument with a spouse. Uh, all kinds of things <laughs> can affect heart rate. So consequently, it's not it's not perfect, but it gives us an idea of what's going on with within a single workout. So if you look at one workout, like an athlete rides, tell the athlete to ride for two hours steady, 
at a given heart rate. Let's say that heart rate is in the two zone, and they ride for two hours steady in the two zone, and their decoupling at the end of the workout is less than 1.05. I feel pretty confident the athlete is, athlete's aerobic fitness is coming along quite nicely. I'd like to be able to confirm that with several other similar type of workouts, but, but that's, that's a good indicator. Uh, but it's only just a snapshot. It only tells us today what it was like. Uh, fitness changes all the time. It may be better or worse next week. And so we need something that looks at a long term, and that's where efficiency factor comes in. Efficiency factor is, um, uh, again, compares power to, uh, to heart rate but it does it for the entire workout or segment of a workout. And mm-hmm. so let's to go back to my example again. Let's say the athlete rode for two hours at a given heart rate, and we came up with a power at the end of it. Uh, let, let's give an example of that. Let's say the athlete rode for an hour at 200 watts. So I, let, me, let me reverse that. Let's say the a- athlete rode for an hour at 150 beats per minute. So he's watching his heart rate and rode at 150 beats per minute, and his average or normalized power I use normalized for this. Mm-hmm. It was 200 watts for that hour. Then I divide 200 by 150, and I find that his efficiency factor was 1.33. That by itself really doesn't tell me anything. I've got to compare it with other similar workouts. So a week from now, the athlete repeats that workout, rides 150 uh, at, at 150 beats per minute, and produces a power output of, of 205 divided by 150, is a 1.37. So we can look at that and say, gosh, we've had an improvement. We've gone from, we've increased our power output, the ratio has increased, and therefore we must be going the right direction. Things are heading exactly where we want them to go. Had the number gone down, I would look at it and say, well, maybe it's just a one-off. Maybe it's just a hot day. Mm. Maybe it's too much caffeine before the workout. Um, you know, I really, I really don't know all the variables, but if I watch efficiency factor over a long period of time, several weeks, I'll begin to see a pattern, and that pattern should be pointing in the right direction, which is the number is always rising. And if that's the case, then I know we're doing the right things as far as developing um, aerobic um, efficiency. And so, consequently, that, that's what it's all about. So, decoupling is kind of a snapshot. We're taking one, a one-shot look at the athlete's aerobic fitness. And efficiency factor is a way of looking at it over a longer period of time. With that, so, so what you're really saying is you've got to be careful with the workouts that you are comparing on a like-for-like basis because, as you said, you know, if you go out and do interval workouts or highly variable workouts or, or it's hot or whatever, you just, just need to take some of these sessions with a grain of salt. But when you when you are comparing a, a like-for-like session uh, with the same, you know, the same sort of level of energy going into them, then, then that's when it becomes a bit more valuable. Yeah, exactly right. So what I do, for example, is I'll have athletes do, in the base period, do a workout, something like that, once a week. They'll ride at a given heart rate. Usually usually I use two-zone. I'll tell the athlete, I want you to ride in the lower half of your heart rate two-zones, <coughs> using the system that I've come up with for heart rate zones. So ride in, in that range, which is relatively easy, actually, uh, for a given period of time. Let's say it's two hours. And then when it's all done, I look at the data and I look at normalized power for that two hours versus average heart rate for that two hours. And I've got the information I need about efficiency factor. And if I use the decoupling, uh, I can take a look at what happened during that one workout as far as a marker for, uh, for efficiency. 
when you say um, level two zone for you, uh, in terms of people that use different terminology, is the top of level is top of level two around Ironman effort for most people, or is it still even lower than that? Um, if the person is riding more than six hours in an Ironman, then yeah, it's probably about right. Lower yeah. two zone heart rate. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the faster the person rides, of course, typically the higher the heart rate becomes zone wise. Yeah. So yeah, I, I but I I typically use low heart rate zone two regardless. It's just I think it's a it's puts you very close to aerobic threshold. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to work on here is aerobic threshold, yeah. not anaerobic. And so consequently, I think it's like the uh, the optimal intensity to use heart rate wise. Okay. When um. Yeah, I remember first hearing Cameron Brown talk about this once in a uh, in a race when he first got his got a power meter, and this was you know a number of years ago. And he he really saw obviously what you're talking about with with decoupling, where you know he would ride maybe the much of the Ironman race at a, at a set heart rate, and once he got the power meter, he saw that you know whilst his heart rate was staying the same, his power was dropping off a bit um, yeah. to the tail end of the, of the ride. So, what are some of the other terms that people, when you talk about decoupling, some of the other terms that maybe people have heard about, you know, whether it cardiac drift, heart rate drift, can you just explain some of the other terms people may have heard to, that mean sure. the similar or the same thing? Yeah, we could talk about heart rate, cardiac drift, that would be, that's one part of decoupling. Uh, it would show up very nicely in, in decoupling. If you look at the, the chart in Churning Peaks or in uh, WKO, <laughs> what you see is a heart rate line, uh, you know, typically a red uh, graphic line of what happened to heart rate during that workout. And you see a, typically a black graphic line of what happened to power. And um, if heart rate was rising throughout the workout, in other words, the athlete was rise, riding at a steady power, but heart rate would drop, was rising, we would typically call that a cardiac drift. Heart rate is rising. That's typically what we use for that term, the term used for that situation. Uh, but I realized at the time that heart rate could stay the same, but power could drop, just as you're talking about there with the example. And that's really the same thing. It's just the mm-hmm. other side of the same coin. It's, it's kind of like cardiac drift, but that was a little bit confusing to call it cardiac drift because the heart rate really wasn't uh, drifting at all. It was staying constant because the athlete was watching it. But now we had power drifting down. We had power drift. Mm. And so uh, in trying to come up with a lot of terminology for this, I decided to call it decoupling because if you look at the chart, it looks like railroad tracks, if you got it right, the two lines are parallel. And if they're if they don't stay parallel, they're coming apart, they're decoupling. It's just like the train is coming off the tracks, essentially. <laughs> so um, what's sort of an acceptable level of decoupling? If people are analysing both their training and their racing, um, what's acceptable? You know, if, if if somebody's sitting there riding through an Ironman ride and they're saying, for example, right, I'm going to sit, you know, ballpark around 175 watts and I'm just going to hold that regardless. Um, when d- is it an issue when heart rate starts to rise too much or, or what, what, are the, what are the sort of signs people need to look out for? Yeah, if they're riding in a steady power output, if you begin to see heart rate rising, um, which is typical, I mean, that that's probably going to happen in a race uh, because fatigue does set in, uh, then you're going to see heart rate rise at, at, a, at a standard power output. And um, the issue is at what intensity is the athlete riding? If, the, if it's a sprint distance race, for example, it's probably going to be greatly anaerobic. 
And really, heart rate's going to rise dramatically, and decoupling is not going to be a factor here because it really doesn't pay, doesn't really give us good information when we're talking about going anaerobic. It's only when we're aerobic. So as we start talking about the longer race distances, especially up to half Ironman, Ironman distance, those distances are very, uh, the athletes should very definitely be watching for that happening. Riding, for example, in a in a half Ironman race at a given wattage and seeing heart rate rise, there's nothing you can do about it except slow down. If you if at some point you're going to be forced to slow down anyway, if the heart rate is, is rising at a rapid rate, the athlete's going to be forced to slow down because of fatigue. Uh, if he's not forced to slow down, then it worked out okay. It, it's fine. Uh, so it's really comes. It always comes back in a race. It always comes back to how do I feel. That's that's always the main issue. Numbers are nice to have in a race, but the bottom line is you know got to be able to race based on perceived exertion, uh, no matter wh- how much technology you got on your handlebars. Uh, you still got to be able to go based on how you feel. So, but if the athlete sees that happening um, at a rather rapid rate, in other words, you're riding at a standard power output and you're seeing heart rate rising. Uh, the athlete needs to be prepared to um, with the, the concept here that, yes, I'm sli- I, I need to slow down at some point because it's rising rather rapidly, and that's telling me there's something wrong here. So having both pieces of information is really quite valuable, but still the athlete needs, needs to make a decision based on how he feels, he or she feels. Now, but Joe, one of the problems with Ironman athletes is that, you know, in, in the ride we often think we're invincible, and so... People might see this information and still feel okay, but it's you know it really yeah. hits them in the run because they they blow up because they went too hard on the ride. So psychologically, you know, at what point you know because a lot of people will probably tell you after a race, well, I was actually feeling okay then. So what do you do in that situation? Sure. Yeah, you're likely to feel good. In fact, you're likely to have a, um, a fast bike split, one of your fastest ever. <laughs> uh, but then you wind up jogging or walking and, and you blow all the time that you gained on the bike is lost on the run um, the key there really is to be able to hold to, to stay coupled 1.05 or less throughout the entire uh, bike segment and if you do that I can practically guarantee the athlete that they're going to have an extremely good run when they come off the bike that's what when I train athletes for Ironman distance that's what we train to do we train to be able to hold the highest power output possible without decoupling. And so we're searching for that number all the time. What's the number we need to not have decoupling over the course of your ride? If we can accomplish that, if we get that, then they come off and they have a good run also. If they don't, if, if it goes well above 1.05, uh, they're going to have a, a less than, than, than uh, a good run. Mm-hmm. Um. Is there any tricks you've got in terms of um, how people can improve that that decoupling number or the efficiency factor? You know, you've talked about sure. staying at. You know, if if you if your decoupling is is great, you you stay at um, a particular level of your training, or you stay in an aerobic zone. So, is there any sort of test sessions that you recommend um, before sort of people advance their training on, or, or if they're seeing big amounts of decoupling, what type of training they should be doing? Yeah, what I what I do with Ironman distance athletes is uh, in the base period they'll do once a week they'll do a, a long ride. Now that's kind of depends a little bit on the athlete I'm talking about, so it's hard to define. But usually in excess of three hours, four hours is quite common. Could be five hours for some athletes. We'll do a long ride and it'll be done at that low heart rate, and we'll just see what what I want to see happen is that 
we finally reached the point where decoupling is no longer an issue for these long rides. They're, they're um, staying 1.05 or less, and efficiency factor is improving throughout this period of time. Uh, once I see this well established, then what I'll do is we'll go up to um, a little bit higher intensity. We'll bump it up to high two zone. Now ride high two zone, same way for a given period of time, and we'll see what happens as far as decoupling and and uh, efficiency factor uh, over the course of a few weeks again. And really, really all it comes down to is just like anything else in training is just repetition. We just need to just continue to stress the body, and the body will adapt by to by becoming stronger, and therefore we'll have less decoupling, and our efficiency factor will improve. It just takes, you know, nose to the grindstone, just week after week after week after week. What, what about in the, in the, obviously you guys are going through a bit of a heat wave in, in North America at the moment, um, and obviously heart rate's going to be influenced by that heat. So, so what do people, what can people do um, to, to sort of cope with the heat, and do they need to back off their race intensity even further given their heart rate is likely to be a bit higher in the heat? And similarly, if they, if they go to Kona where you know, heart rate is likely to be a little bit higher because of the heat? Yeah, I'll give you a great example of that. <clears throat> a few years ago, I, for, for about three years, I coached an Ironman athlete um, who uh, lived in Phoenix, Arizona, which is one of the hottest cities in North America. Mm. Um, the average high temperature there in the summertime is going to be 108 Fahrenheit, which is probably nice. what high mid 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, C Celsius, and uh, uh, and he. But to make matters worse, he he was a physician and he worked nights in the uh, emergency room. So uh. he would get off work about eight o'clock in the morning, come home, go to bed, get some sleep time in, and then he'd start his workout around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is the hottest part of the day. Uh, so he's always seen extreme heat all summer long. Uh, again, training for Kona for this guy. should have mentioned that. He's training for Kona. And uh, so at the start of the summer, when we started his build period, he began to do these workouts. You know, his, his decoupling is quite high. His efficiency factor is not looking, is not improving for the first few weeks. And then things begin to turn around. It typically takes about three to four to five weeks to adapt to heat and then the body adjusts and uh, things begin to look more normal and by the time he got to Kona at the end of the year every year uh, he was in great shape for the heat Heat was absolutely no problem at all for him uh, his efficiency factor was was high his decoupling was low and uh, he was ready to race so it's just a matter of, it's like anything else he just, he just adapted to the heat you know, this, this decoupling and uh, efficiency factor seem like pretty powerful tools for, you know, all athletes and coaches to be using. But what about the athlete who can't afford a power meter or doesn't have a power meter? Is, is there ways that you can, obviously, it's pretty hard when you can't use both of, both of those indicators, but are there ways that they can kind of figure this out without a power meter? Not precisely, but you can get a, a rough idea. I, think, I, I suspect athletes have always done this. Uh, they didn't have names for it. Um, but essentially, uh, all we have to see in decoupling is uh, if the athlete is riding at a, at a let's say, a, a steady heart rate, assuming they have a heart rate monitor, riding at a steady heart rate for some period of time, what should be happening over the course of that time, uh, if the athlete's in good shape, is it doesn't really feel like it's getting a whole lot harder. There is a little bit of fatigue that sets in, but it's not extreme. But if the athlete is not doing well, in other words, if the decoupling is going to be high, even though they don't know the numbers, 
what they'll experience is that the uh, the effort is getting very high for that heart rate. It's just taking greater and greater effort to maintain the output to get that particular heart rate. So it's not very precise, but it's just really still the same thing. It's just we're kind of measuring what's happening with the body uh, in terms of its uh, sensing effort and fatigue. Mm. So for, for athletes, when they're looking on, on trainingpeaks.com at their um – you know their, their files you can you can see the efficiency factor number in there and you can see also the the power to heart rate number in there which is is your decoupling um is are there other tools in there that can help you track things rather than looking at each individual workout um are there charts and so on that athletes should be looking at to help them track these things well, um, there are several charts there. They really don't they, that really don't track those fact those issues those those uh, those particular parameters. Uh, that's something we have to look at every time and kind of keep track of. Uh, what I do with the athletes I coach is I I keep track of decoupling and, and efficiency factor for every workout they do that's of a certain type, mm-hmm. and uh, and just come see what's happening. Over uh, over the long term, right now we don't have anything on Training Peaks that uh, does that. Um, there are quite honestly, there's there's so much material, so much data on Training Peaks uh, mm. and, and WKO. The athlete could be using to improve. It's just it's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. One of the other gigantic ones for um, for uh, Ironman distance, especially, is Variability Index or VI. Mm-hmm. That, that this again requires a power meter, and it's just a comparison of normalized power and average power. And I know when the athletes got more than five percent variance between normalized power and average power, that they're just not they're not riding steady enough. And if you have to, if you're going to have a good Ironman distance race, you have to have very steady power up, but you can't be surging throughout the race, surging and backing off, surging and backing off. That will waste tremendous amounts of energy. But I see it all the time. I see athletes. I, I go to Kona every year, and I stand about on the bike course about a mile into it. There's a small hill there, mm-hmm. and uh, I see athletes anaerobic already. One mile into a 112-mile bike ride, and they're already anaerobic. And I know what's going to happen. They're going to keep doing that for the first probably hour. But time somebody tries to pass them, they're going to surge to keep that people person from going around them. Uh, they're going to go way too hard on uphills. Um, Basically, it's going to waste tremendous amounts of energy, and the last two, maybe three hours is just going to be a death march, mm-hmm. and it's because of variability index. So, And there's just so much data there. It's, you know, we could spend an entire day just talking about all the stuff that an athlete could use to analyze their readiness to race and preparation. <clears throat> tremendous tool, tremendous tool, and, and it's probably beyond where most athletes are right now. It's the sort of thing that coaches have a hard time keeping up with. Tell me about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome, Joe. Um, any predictions for, for the Olympics? Who's, who, who are you picking for the oh, Olympics? Oh, here we go. I'd, I'd rather not pick right now. They'll get me in trouble with somebody, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I was there in 2000 in Sydney for the very first triathlon in the Olympics, and uh, what an experience that was. And so I, I wish I could go back this year, but I'm not going to make it. But uh, I'll certainly be watching on television. It, it'll be a tremendous experience. Uh, 
uh, we'll just have to hold our breath and see what happens. Awesome. Very, very political of you. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Joe. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, we know that, you know, there's, as you said, there's lots of things going on, training peaks, and um, I think you've highlighted a couple of the really key ones is a, is, is a variability index, index as well as mm-hmm. decoupling to see where your, your aerobic fitness is at. So um, thank you very much for your time. We'll, we'll look forward to getting you back on the show sometime soon. Happy to do it, guys. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Have a great day. Uh, Jumbo sponsors. Extreme Endurance. Your lactic buffer. And, and our patrons. Our patrons. And name a few. David, the great greyhound Hutchian. Ken, rocking the free world young. Ken was over and wrote last oh, year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lovely Ken. He's, he's a Kiwi, but he's a doctor. Scottish, Scottish, Scottish Kiwi, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he was a doctor up north, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. Palm, Palmy North or something yeah, like lovely that. Yeah, lovely guy, lovely guy. And Glenn Slammon Newbold, another Kiwi living offshore. Oh, the Kiwis are taking over. Um, if you want to get, become a patron, go to www.imtalk.me. You can just see on the main page the link to becoming a patron, and you just contribute to the show. It really helps the boys do what we do. Uh, you can also get some coaching from John at coachjohnnewsome.com. You can check out my podcast, The Bevan James Isles Show, at bevanjamesisles.com. And you can email us at imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. John, what's your goss? What's my goss? It's still December the 18th, despite this show being released on January the yeah. 15th. Yeah, it really so is. So we've done our fifth show in a row. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go crazy today, Bevan. I'm finishing up a bike ride here, and I'm actually going then straight into interviewing Sarah True, which you guys will have heard probably about three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go somewhere a bit different today. I'm going to go out to New Brighton. going to go crazy. I've got my regular loop that I do Oh, isn't it a bike ride? It's a bike ride. Do you know what loop that I used to do when I lived in St. Martin's? Yeah. was the outside of town. All right. So you basically ride Haven't out to quite Hornby. have got time to do that today. It's a two-hour loop. Right? Yeah, so you go out to Hornby, and you go out to the airport, down John's Road, mm-hmm. and then you go out past Curie 2. Great name, that road. Oh, well, I think they named it after you, didn't they? Yes, they yeah. did. Even though you weren't even born, though, like, there's yeah. got to be a John, who's a legend. And then you go around past Curie 2, through New Brighton, past the ship ponds, back. Yeah. That was a great two-hour loop. There you go, for all you non-Christians. Oh, I'm they sure love you it. know that well. Do you know what I did the other night, John? You went crazy. Well, I did go a little bit crazy, because I, I went on YouTube. And I watched Royal Rumble from the WWF, Ooh. 1990. 1990? 19, and that's when we were hardcore. Like, it was the best year for you and I to go right. back and watch Royal Rumble. Yeah. Hey, Jake, ha- Jake the Snake Jake Roberts. Jake the Snake. Jim Hacks, 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 Jim Hacks Duggan. or Jim Duggan. Um, Dino Bravo. Hercules. Yeah. Um, 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 big, um, the big uh, yeah, brown guy. Him, um, the Ultimate Warrior. Ultimate Warrior. It was, and yeah. it came down to him a Hulk at the end. Macho Man Randy Savage. Macho, macho Man Randy Savage. Was Elizabeth there or not? No, she wasn't there. No, there was no no by the, the rings. Hakeem. Oh, the Hakeem. big boss man. Oh, the big boss man, yeah. Mate, it was nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> it was a waste of 15 minutes of my life, but geez, I loved it. Yeah. I, loved, I couldn't remember who won. Yeah. And it came down to Hulk. And I tell you what, Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man, yes. I was well impressed with him because he was first in the ring yeah. and he lasted to like the last three people. Jimmy Superfly Snooker? Jimmy Snooker <laughs> Snooker was there. It was sensational. <laughs> So when you're on holiday and you've got sometimes a wet day, go on YouTube, look up 1990 Royal Rumble. Right. Don't go into other ones because 1993, just don't know. We think we give good nicknames. Those are good nicknames. Oh, those, they, they were the days. I tell you what, next few patrons, you're going to start getting some, <laughs> remember that. Snookify. In, in a month's time, Ben, when we're doing some more nicknames, bring back some wrestling nicknames. Well, the good news is we are back into the studios next week. The boys are going to be back to normal next week. I think I may have an interview with Mecca. 
Okay. Um, uh, Sweet. Yeah, so that might be coming up in next week's show. So, and we're going to be talking about Super League. So, John, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Indo. Train hard. Train smart. Kick, Kick hard. hard.